0: You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We've had a lot of talk about some of the issues that you deal with in terms of legal responsibility. Uh, Some of the questions that were asked of the attorney and in the last session kind of fall right in my wheelhouse. And I'm trying to think of ways that we can make this relevant to you in your day-to-day lives. So I hope I'll be able to do that today in this session. Here's what I want you to know. There is no expectation that you'll be an expert in reimbursement. You will certainly not be after this session. Your clinical practitioners, I get that. That's where the bulk of your time and energy and attention is being spent. That's the way it should be. What I do want you to know is, number one, your ability to practice is not simply based on your clinical knowledge. It's based on your understanding and adherence to certain rules and regulation, some of which you have no control over, and some of which you don't know much about. That's a little bit scary. Secondly, it's going to be your ability to show your value to a practice, to a hospital, to a dermatological practice. That's going to determine whether or not you fit their long-term plan in terms of return on investment, how much they put out in terms of salary and benefit, how much you bring back in terms of revenue, reimbursement, and non-dollar revenue and reimbursement. All those come into play these days. I will tell you that I'm not a clinician, but I'm married to a PA have been for 23 years, internal medicine, and I get it when she comes home and says, I got this really weird problem in terms of this payer, Cigna, United Healthcare, whomever, what do I do about that? It's not easy, it's complicated, I'll give you that. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna try to help you out just a bit in terms of giving you some good information. As soon as my clicker starts to work here. Okay, here we go. I'm a good consultant, here's my disclaimer. Everything I say to you today is true to the best of my knowledge. If it changes next Monday when you get back to your practice, that is your problem, your responsibility. Policies change all the time. Between Medicare, Medicaid, all the commercial payers, it's not my fault, not my problem. It's your responsibility and your practice's responsibility to know how to deal with these issues and what is current policy at any given time. So it's going to feel a little bit like this. Drinking from the fire hose, okay, but again, Don't try to memorize everything I tell you. Simply recognize patterns, and that when you, in your practice, see and hear about things that don't quite fit a certain status or practice, when you see things that look odd and feel like an outlier, that's your signal to call us at the national office and my team of five people who work on reimbursement issues all the time. We're there to help you in that regard. I am not an expert on nurse practitioners. I do not speak on behalf of nurse practitioners. In the reimbursement realm, their issues are the same as yours. Almost every policy under Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial payers are the same between the two professions. If you want detailed information, go to the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners. I will tell you on the national level, we work with them often because our issues are so similar. We go to Capitol Hill and fight together on common issues. We go to payers and fight against them because we have the same issues. I meet with my counterpart the directive reimbursement at the ANP probably three or four times a year because we have things in common. What you do is going to be determined by state law, state regulation, we know that, but it's also going to be based on facility policy, what your hospital says, what your practice says, what the laws in your state happen to say. And then it's going to be based on payment policy. In the old days, we said that you could do what you wanted to do, and even if a payer said they weren't going to pay you for it, that's okay. You could still do that service, that procedure. Well, that's not really true anymore. Because with Medicare and Medicaid, what they say is that, irrespective of whether or not we pay for the service or not, if you don't follow our rules that we put in place in terms of regulation, we can take your practice or your facility out of the Medicare program for a year, two years, or as long as we want to. And that means that your practice will have no access to any federal government reimbursement. Medicare, Medicaid, VA, or anything else, they can exclude you from all that if you don't follow the rules that they put in place regarding your practice. So it's essential that you understand all of these facets. Whether it's Medicare's conditions of participation, whether it's a joint commission or any of the other certifying bodies, whether it's your PA scope of practice policies and laws and regulations, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or workers' comp, understand, just because you know what Medicare says about your ability to practice, just because you understand Medicare's guidelines, doesn't mean that you know anything about Medicaid or workers' comp or any of the other scores of private payers. They are all different organizations and have different policies that they can put in place that deal with your ability to get reimbursed and practice. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this issue because you had an attorney talking with you about this before. I do want to hit on a couple of points, though. Every day, we're seeing situations in which PAs are treated much like physicians in terms of fraud and abuse. Every month, Medicare puts out a list. It's called the exclusion list. And it gives us a list of those health care providers that have been kicked out of the Medicare program for a certain period of time for some kind of fraudulent activity. Five years ago, I almost never saw a PA on that list. It was almost all doctors and chiropractors and optometrists and others. These days, we see routinely the names of PAs on that list. Congratulations, you've grown up to be just like doctors. Well, here's the deal. People make mistakes all the time. And Medicare and its auditors understand what a simple mistake looks like. What they don't understand or feel very good about are patterns of bad behavior, whether intentional or not. And that's what I want to try to get you to avoid, those patterns of bad behavior that put you in the crosshairs of a fraud and abuse audit. Say you're in one of these practices that have been doing wrong in terms of Medicare billing for PAs and NPs, and say you've got to pay back $373,000. Now, typically, the problem is with the organization that hires you, because they're the ones who submit bills for your services, they're the ones who receive the money, and therefore Medicare tends to go after these entities in terms of payback. But the fact is, if you are the provider of service, you are wrapped into this discussion, into this investigation, and into this problem. How many of you, by a show of hands, know what happens with your bill after you fill out your medical record or your encounter form? Much like physicians, you don't see it. It may go to the third floor or the basement of the hospital. It might go to a billing clearinghouse across town. It might go somewhere in another state. And the fact is, Medicare is saying to you, you're responsible for your billing, for your coding, for your documentation but you, like most physicians, have no idea what the final bill looks like when it gets submitted to Medicare. That's a problem, but it's not unusual, which means you've got to do your reasonable part to make sure that the folks who do submit those bills have a fairly good understanding of what the policies are surrounding PAs. There are a lot of high-priced consultants out there. Most of them do a really good job. However, about 20% of everything I hear and see coming from a consultant is either incorrect or incomplete which means they don't quite get the nuance they get part of it right but not the complete story and yet they're telling your practice managers your department heads your supervising or collaborating physicians how to utilize a pa and how to build for the service with a 20 percent error rate that's a little daunting that's why i say to you that you have a responsibility to know the basics of what it means to bill for your services, and to know when somebody says something or does something that's not quite accurate, therefore you know that's the time to call us at the national office. So, you've heard it before, what can they do if you submit a bad claim? They can take back reimbursement dollars that were paid. They can fine you between $10,000 and $21,000, not per day or per week, but per bad claim that you submit. And they can also exclude you from the Medicare program for 30 days, a year, two years, or as long as they want to, based on how egregious your particular problem is. Who's watching to do these kinds of things? Well, the government now says they make $10 in profit for every $1 they spend on fraud and abuse activity. $10 for every $1 spent, which means they're going to be doing more of it. All of these agencies are separate federal government agencies. The RAC auditors, the Office of Inspector General, the Heat Enforcement Bureau, They are all out there doing nothing more than saying, what can we do to find out when somebody is misusing the Medicare or Medicaid program? And for some of your practices who think that it's safe to bill at a certain level because they're trying to avoid any kind of audit, think again about that. I ran into a practice doing some consultation. It was a fairly large group, about 37 docs, about 20 PAs. I asked them how they determined what they were going to bill in terms of their office visit code, and they told me We bill everything at a 99213. It's not too high, not too low, therefore it's not going to bring any scrutiny to our organization. I said, well, what about the documentation guidelines? What is the actual bill that should be submitted based on what you did for the patient in terms of history-taking, present illness, examination, medical decision-making? They said, they don't care about that. They just bill that safe 99213. I had to tell them that 99213 is not a safe code to bill. Because when an auditor comes into an area or a city like Seattle, what they'll do is they'll look at the billing patterns for every dermatological practice in the city. And like most practices, it looks like a bell curve. A few 99212s, a lot of threes, smaller number of fours and fives. It's the bell curve. It may shift left or right depending on the patient population and the severity of illness, but it's almost always a bell curve of some sort. When an auditor sees a practice that says, we've got a flat line, everything is 99213, that becomes the outlier practice. That becomes the practice that the auditors want to go visit because they realize that that is the outside of the norm, and they're doing something differently or behaving differently than every other practice in the region. So there is no safety here except doing it right with proper documentation and building the code that's most appropriate for the level of service being provided. See this promise? It's a promise to the federal government And it says, the information on this claim form is true and accurate and complete. It says, I have familiarized myself with the rules and regulations of the program, in this case, the Medicare program, and that I understand them. It also says, whether this claim is submitted by me or a billing person across town or someone else in the hospital or the practice, I certify that I'm responsible. How many of you have signed this form? How many of you have made this promise to Medicare? Hand up everybody in the room that that signed up in the Medicare program has made this promise. It's on the form, whether you read it or not, whether you saw it or not, it's on the form. So, what I'm trying to say to you is that you are in this full bore, and it's important for you to make sure that you are identifying the people in your practice at least once a year to say, here's my understanding of what Medicare policy is for PAs. Grab it off the AAPA website. We have detailed information on every aspect of billing on the website, and I want you to take that and give it to your billing and coding people once per year to say, here's what I think governs my ability to practice under Medicare. If you have any disagreement or discrepancy with this, let me know about it, I can hook you up with our folks at the national office. They can help work out any disagreement that you might have with these processes. But the fact is, some proactive responsibility on your part is important, to make sure that you are protecting your ability to practice under Medicare, Medicaid, and most other programs. Okay, some hot topics for you. Electronic health records. How many of you love your electronic records? Come on, get them up. Oh, not so good. So look, I get it. They stink in many cases. They're not interoperative. All the promises that got made didn't quite work out the way they should have. I told you my wife's a PA, internal medicine, a small physician practice in Washington, D.C. They got a brand new EHR system a few months ago. The EHR vendor said, doctor, please, cut your patient load for three days back to 50% while we're putting in this new program. It's gonna take that much time for the staff to get used to it. My wife's collaborating physician, being a bit of a cowboy, said, we don't need to do that. We can book 100% of our patients and still put in a new EHR all at once. And that's what they tried it did not go well for those three days. My wife brought home a stack of paper files about this tall, about 6.31 evening, plopped them down on the kitchen island, got out her computer and said, I'm gonna start doing my electronic health records right now, and she started complaining about the EHR systems. I had just been doing some consulting with some major hospitals, promoting the value of EHR. And like a good consultant, i try to console her with ideas such as, do you understand, honey, what great information we're going to get out of these EHR for research, for claims, for all the other things we're going to do? And I started going on, and I saw her face, and I realized that after 20 years of marriage, I should have been so much smarter. I should have started swearing at those silly EHR vendors and calling them all sorts of names, and I will do that the next time. But the fact is, we know that there are serious problems with EHR. The government knows it. They're trying to fix it. I'm not sure it's gonna happen anytime soon, but the fact is, it's part of your lives. One of our concerns about EHR is making sure that they are being user-friendly for PAs throughout the country. And in some areas, we find that they're not necessarily doing that. We've undertaken a survey of all the major EHR vendors in the country, both on the hospital side and the practice side, to make sure that they are available to PAs to be used just as physicians use them. I'm pleased to say that 99.9% of all the EHR vendors have submitted to us in writing that PAs can use their system just as a physician. But here's the kicker. Does the practice order the system up in that fashion? Because a lot of the EHR systems have component parts and you can add to them. They may not sell the entire package up front. You may not know that you need a certain portion of a package until after the system gets put in place which is why the Academy has put together what's called the EHR Toolkit. And it's a series of documents that we have on our website available for your use that number one, become a best practice checklist for EHR implementation. Number two, we have a document that says for a vendor, here is the best system you can use and here's why you need to make that user-friendly for PAs. We've got talking points for you to take to your internal folks at the practice or to an outside vendor to tell them why their practice will perform much more efficiently when PAs are able to do everything a doc does with an EHR system. If you have a system that says we want a doc co-signature or we want somebody else to check off on it, when that isn't required by Medicare, state law, or any other policy, that is a waste of regulatory burden. We think that ought not be in place. We've got a nice white paper, three or four pages long, that says here's why it makes sense to have an efficient EHR and how PAs can use it and we also have an infographic, which means everything you need to convince your practice, your supervising doc, or any electronic health vendor that PAs ought to be fully engaged in this process are there waiting for you. But I also have to warn you, we're seeing more and more opportunity for fraud with EHR systems, and it happens to do with the cut and paste aspect of a system. Now look, I understand that patients' conditions may not change dramatically from day to day, But if I go to a medical record and I see the same condition, the same circumstances day after day after day, or visit after visit after visit, with very little change in that patient's prognosis, I've got a problem as an auditor. There's got to be something different. Basic information can be transferred from one visit to the next. Doesn't make sense to review past family social history, or repeat that, or even present illness but the fact is there to be something different in each one of those encounters that tell what is going on right here, right now, to prove to me and to auditors that you're not just cutting and pasting one record from one time to another. Medicare said quite specifically, if they find that out and they find that people are just cutting and pasting something called clone medical records, they will deny the claim on the spot. We also have billing issues, EPIC. One of the largest EHR vendors in the country is now going full-bore into billing systems. So instead of just having your patient history and that documentation of the visit, they want to start transferring that and translating that into an actual billing claim system, which is a great idea. Those things should be connected. However, if you think they didn't get EHR implementation right, if you think they didn't get operability right, what is your comfort level if these folks are going to get it right when it comes to billing and reimbursement policy? That is not their level of expertise. I happen to be in a large... My wife's part of a large ACO back in Washington, D.C., and they had a national conference call on PA and P billing. My wife said, you might want to listen in on this because they're going to talk about this issue. I decided to listen in. They talked about Incident 2, they talked about shared visit, they talked about a number of issues, and they were going down this rabbit hole where things were being said that weren't quite accurate. And they got to a point where they said something that was completely incorrect. And even though it was on a speakerphone, I couldn't help myself in saying, Stop! Now, this was not me on this conference call. That was my wife's conference call, but national in nature for PAs and NPs. So it was a little bit awkward when I had to kind of yell stop in the middle of that process. But the fact is, I knew that this was going nationwide. And even if I corrected the problem or the mistake in a couple of days with the folks giving the session, it would not have gotten to all those people. So the fact is, despite their best attempts, they didn't get it right. I had several conversations with the vice president of operations after that fact to try to bring him up to speed on what was really required. Our relationship is a little bit better than that night when I yelled stop. It's not great right now, but the fact is, we've got to make sure that accurate information is being pulled across the system. Otherwise, your ability to practice properly without fraud and abuse is going to be in jeopardy. You heard a lot of talk today about contracts with payers. I will simply second that. In your practice with your insurance companies, I think that every PA ought to be part of the contract with the insurance company. Whether it's in writing in the contract, whether it's part of an email system, an exchange going between the payer and your practice, whether it's your getting information off the payer's website, there needs to be something in writing that talks about your relationship to the payer and your ability to provide services under state law guidelines. Otherwise, you're just an entity floating out there, and people are assuming what the proper approach is, they're assuming how to bill, and oftentimes that's just not going to be correct. And I do believe this, one size does not fit all. There are a ton of payers out there. Each one can be different in terms of how it relates to how you provide your services. One of the questions I asked earlier was whether or not all the commercial payers follow Medicare policy. The answer is absolutely no. There is one payer, Aetna, which does follow Medicare policy across the board for Incident 2, for Shared Visit, and for other opportunities. All the other payers do not. They are less restrictive than Medicare. Do you bill it under the DOC or under the PA? It depends on the payer. United Healthcare says we bill it under the PA. Cygnus says it's your choice. Under the DOC, under the PA, we don't care, take your choice. The bottom line is You cannot assume a one-size-fits-all approach or anything else when it comes to payer policy, lest you be at risk for fraud abuse. What is important to me is to find out the top three or four payers in your region, call us at the national office and ask point blank, what do these payers say about PAs? We will give you that information. We are in the process now of reestablishing our national payer database which will consist of probably three to 350 payers across the country in which you, as a member of the Academy, will be able to go online and find out the exact policy in writing for all the payers across the country. We've had that in the past. It got a little bit out of date, so we took it down from the website. But that's our goal by the end of this year to have that payer database up because there are too many opportunities for mistakes in terms of what payer policy is. Now, there are only two variations on the theme, bill it under the dot, bill it under the PA but you gotta know which one is in play at any given time. Do you use a modifier code for your services or do you not? Does it matter if you're in the office or the hospital? Does it matter if the doc comes and does some service as part of that visit? Does that become a doc encounter versus yours? All those questions are important. All need to be answered based on the individual payer in question. I wanna talk about Medicare payment policy. Here's the thing. Everybody in this room ought to have a national provider identification number, NPI. If you don't, you're behind the curve. If you don't have an NPI number, you can do nothing electronically in the healthcare system by law. That means you can't write a script, you can't do an electronic note, you can't do anything electronically in healthcare without an NPI number. Also, I hope that each and every one of you is enrolled in Medicare, unless you have a very unique and specialized situation. There are a couple of your practices who may say we have opted out of Medicare completely. My doc did, I did, okay. That may be one reason why you aren't enrolled in Medicare. But for the vast majority of PAs, you need to be enrolled in Medicare. I don't care how often you bill under your name in the Medicare program. There are opportunities to bill under the name of the physician, but that doesn't excuse the fact that you need to be enrolled in Medicare across the board. What does Medicare say about payment policy? Number one, they say it's determined by state law by the delegation of your collaborating physician, by our policies in terms of Medicare and conditions of participation, and by hospital guidelines and regulations. All these must be met in order for you to build successfully under the Medicare program. What does collaboration mean to Medicare? It means that if you've got a cell phone and your collaborating physician has a cell phone, you're good to go. That's all Medicare asks for. Electronic communication and access meets the requirement for supervision across the board. Now, if you happen to be first assisting in a case, yeah, Medicare wants your supervising physician to be the surgeon to be right next to you. But other than that, in the office, hospital, or whatever you do, any other environment, there is generally no requirement for a doc to be on site or to have any involvement in the care of a patient that you happen to be treating. What about CPT? I continue to hear medical directors at certain payers say, 99215 in neurology? Nah, a little bit too high. DERM doing what procedure? I don't think so. It doesn't feel right to me. It's not because of CPT. CPT is that system that gives you five digits to describe everything you can do in medicine and surgery. It's owned and operated by the American Medical Association. They've got the copyright. The only thing CPT does is describe services that are being provided. It does not get into the issue as to who can do what because that's a function of state law. Both the AMA and anything in the CPT book says, we don't tell who can do what, when, or where. We simply describe the service and let you figure out when it's appropriate for a PA or any other healthcare provider to deliver that service. Do not let anyone tell you that based on CPT, you are limited in terms of your scope of practice. It generally isn't true. What about having a doc involved in the care of the patient? I saw one of the questions earlier that said, the doc came in, stuck his head, and said hi to Mrs. Jones as a patient. Maybe did a couple of things in the room, but does that allow the service to be billed under the doctor? The answer is no. Having the doctor have some kind of cursory interaction with the patient, even having the doc review or talk with you about the documentation and the medical record, does not change the ability for the doc to bill that service under his or her name. Now, if there is a payer out there on the commercial side that says, whenever a PA provides care, bill it under the doctor, well, that's their policy. It's not because of the doc's intervention or interaction with the patient, that it's just their national policy. But for Medicare purposes, having a doc become involved or engage with a patient does not allow that service to be billed under the doctor's name, as an incident to claim, or anything else. Medicare concerns itself with the professional work product. And if you're the one who provided the care, then that's under whom that service should be billed. Scribes. Any of you have scribes in your practice? Pretty impressive. We're seeing a lot more of that, especially in ED, but now it's coming on to other kinds of specialty care. Scribes are wonderful. They're doing a great job. And if they can mitigate that terrain between you and the EHR, I'm all for it. I simply say that a PA should never be used as a scribe. That is a waste of time and energy and money. And it doesn't gain anything in terms of billing. If your practice thinks that scribes are a good idea, that's great. One for you, one for the doc. That makes perfect sense to me. If you are ever in a position of being used in that method, I think you ought to think twice about that. The fact is, under Medicare guidelines, a scribe is simply an individual that acts as a living recorder. They jot down the services of another healthcare provider. A scribe can never add, change, augment, or do anything else to a medical record lest they break the law. And if you as a peer are being used as a scribe, I'm betting you're doing more than just writing down what a doc does. So number one, that's illegal. Number two, I've seen what the cost is for a scribe per minute of time. I've seen the cost per minute of time of a PA. If you want a scribe in the practice, great, but don't pay a PA salary for a scribe. It's a waste of your practice's money. There may be a couple of times when you're new to the practice, you're following the doc around for the first week or so, and you're trying to get a feel for the practice style of the doc. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. But on an ongoing basis, that should never be the role of a PA. Consults. I hear this a lot. Here's the deal. Medicare completely eliminated consults from its billing activity back in 2010. You cannot bill Medicare for a consult. However, when you're in a hospital situation, where you're in a practice situation, and family practice is referring a patient to you, they may often refer to that as a consult. I get that. That's fine. On your EHR or encounter forms, it may allow you to check off a consult. What typically happens is when that form gets to the biller, they change that into an E&M code, because now that's what consults really are, E&M codes. So I've got no problem with that happening either, but the bottom line is, if you ever try to build Medicare with a consult code, it's gonna be kicked out. Private commercial payers still allow consult codes to be billed, Medicare does not. Office-based reimbursement. So because you have a defined benefit under Medicare, you have a unique way of going about how you bill for your services. Let's make sure that we never confuse PAs and residents and fellows and anyone else. They are not the same as you well know. They aren't the same for billing. Residents and fellows do not have the ability to bill Medicare, PAs do. Residents gain the ability under a teaching physician, but they don't have a benefit. And sometimes I see doctors who have dealt with residents and fellows and think the same thing applies to PAs, and they are wrong. So again, when you bill Medicare for a patient, That you've treated. There's never a requirement for the doctor to be involved or engage or to see or touch that patient. Never a requirement. As long as you're working within your state law scope of practice, as long as you are enrolled in the Medicare program, you build that service under your name and your NPI number, and case closed. Medicare will reimburse you at 85% of the physician fee schedule. You never pre-bill Medicare at a discounted rate. You use the same CPT code and the same dollar amount that your physician bills Medicare. When Medicare sees your claim number, your PA number, your NPI, and your PTAN number, that alerts them to reduce it by 15%. But you never pre-discount a claim to Medicare. Incident two, this is one of those issues that's been around for quite some time. I'm convinced that it's the one thing that's gonna keep me fully employed at the Academy until I reach Medicare age which, frankly, isn't all that long, I'm sad to say, but that's a separate issue. Here's the thing. It's often misunderstood, it's often misused, and it's ripe for fraud and abuse. And as one of the other speakers earlier today said, in the last session actually, I don't like Incident 2 because it hides your service under that of the physician's name. Under Incident 2, we allow you to provide a service to a Medicare beneficiary You build the service under the doctor, which means you qualify for 100% reimbursement as opposed to 85%, so an extra 15% payment coming from Medicare. But the fact is, when I'm trying to show the value of PAs in terms of volume of services, in terms of quality indicators, in terms of other scores, and your service is being billed incident to the doc, I'm lost. I can't find you, I can't identify you, which means I can't really talk to policymakers about your impact on the healthcare system. I know how many of you are out there in practice, but if I can't see your patient encounter activity, then I'm at a disadvantage when I talk to them about how policy should be shaped and formulated to make sure that we're making the most out of your services. So here's the deal with Incident 2. It's been around since the 1970s. It was never intended to really talk about the services you provide. Back in the 70s when PAs and NPs first came under the system, they had no way of billing for your services. They had a way of billing for RNs and LPNs and medical assistants, and it was called Incident 2. So the bright policymakers decided we will just kind of fold PAs into that. And frankly, back then, when PAs weren't doing the high-level things that you're doing now, it made some sense. But the fact is, it doesn't represent how you practice in today's world of medicine. So first thing, Incident 2 only applies in the office or clinic setting. Never a hospital, never a nursing home. It makes no sense in the patient's home, only a private office or clinic. Secondly, Incident 2 does not apply to commercial payers, except, as I mentioned before, for Aetna. They're the only ones on the commercial side that use Incident 2 the exact same way Medicare does. All other commercial payers might use the term Incident 2 to describe when you bill under a physician, but they don't require that you use Medicare's regulations and guidelines, and there are a number of them that are related to Incident 2 service. Incident 2 only applies on the second visit to the practice for that patient, only on a follow-up visit. Incident 2 never applies on the first visit for that patient for that medical problem. So, on the first visit to the practice for that medical condition, in order to establish Incident 2 or the possibility for Incident 2, the physician has to personally see and treat that patient. Fully treat the patient on the first visit. By that, I mean history of present illness, full examination, developing the medical decision-making, and developing the plan of care. If the doctor doesn't do that by themselves completely, you never qualify for Incident 2 on a subsequent or follow-up visit. Now, we don't care who does past family social history. I mean, I do that when I go into my doc's office anyway, right? But HPI, exam, and medical decision-making all must be personally done by a physician in order to establish Incident 2. What about a situation in which you routinely, as a PA, see the patient first? You get the HPI, you do half the exam, the doc comes in and does a cursory examination and develops a plan of care. Can it be incident two? Number one, that visit's never gonna be incident two, but you don't even establish incident two for the follow-up with that scenario because the physician didn't personally do the full history of present illness and the full examination. Now, I get a lot of questions about, well, what if the doc repeats what I've done? I do HPI, I do exam, the doc comes in and repeats what I've done to qualify for incident two. Well, number one, I don't believe you if you tell me that. And secondly, it's a real big waste of time to have another healthcare provider come in and repeat exactly what you've done. That makes no sense. Now, I get the fact that in many cases, physicians want the extra 15%, and they're willing to jump through hoops to try to get it. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that I can show you ways to increase your practice revenue without Incident 2 and be just as productive with just as much revenue coming into that practice without using Incident 2 by simply making your practice more efficient in terms of how it runs, in addition to eliminating the possibility of fraud and abuse if you don't do Incident 2 properly. So, when a doc provides a service and they do the HPI exam and medical decision-making and that patient comes back in two weeks or four weeks for a follow-up exam, that gives you the opportunity as a PA to treat that patient under the Incident 2 guidelines. And as long as the doc has done what he or she should have done in that first visit, you've got the ability to see that patient by yourself with no physician involvement whatsoever on that follow-up visit as long as a physician within your group is available and on site. Now, Medicare doesn't require that doc to get involved with the care of the patient. doesn't require the doc to see or treat the patient in any way or fashion. doesn't require the doc to co-sign any kind of chart or anything of that nature. There simply must be a doc on site when the patient comes back for follow-up care for that same condition that was diagnosed before. And Medicare also says it doesn't have to be the same doc on site who treated the patient on the first visit. So Dr. Smith saw the patient on the first visit. Dr. Jones is on site four weeks later when they come back for a follow-up. That's fine with Medicare. You can use Incident two in that situation. Medicare says simply bill under the name of the doc who's on site who is available for care if necessary. But again, Medicare does not require that doc to get involved with the care of the patient. You provide the full care on that follow-up visit, the claim goes into Medicare under the doc's name, 100% reimbursement comes back to the practice. That is incident two in a nutshell. Again, a couple other issues you have to keep in in mind. The doctor or a doctor must have some kind of ongoing participation in the care of that patient. Medicare does not describe what that means. Does that mean seeing the patient every fifth visit? Perhaps. Doesn't mean that you and the doc should talk about that patient and review the medical record once a year. That'll work. But there had better be something on that medical record that shows that there is involvement ongoing by the physician in order for you to maintain incident two. Okay? If any one of those conditions is not met in total, then that's not going to be an incident claim and Medicare is going to kick that out of its system and it's going to set you up for a potential audit. That's why my belief is that most of the more sophisticated organizations are going away from Incident 2, number one, because they don't want to have to jump through all these hoops, and secondly, because they know they can make money by using PAs more efficiently and not having the dot kind of jump in in the middle of the service to try to make sure it's an Incident 2 service. Because a couple of things happen under Incident 2. Number one, you're halfway through that visit to a Medicare patient, and you make the fatal mistake of saying, Mrs. Jones, is there anything else? It's a Medicare patient of course there's something else. Anytime that something else deviates from the original plan of care, Medicare says it no longer qualifies for incident two billing. So if you're looking at a new problem or new condition for that Medicare patient, even though what you thought you had was an incident two claim, you've got a problem at that point because you've either on that second or third or follow-up visit, you've either got to go and get that doc to bring him or her back into that practice to look at this new problem or new condition or you're not going to be able to bill that as an Incident 2 service anymore. So what often happens with a patient is you have Incident 2 for the first problem. They come in down the road, and they have something new going on. You may decide to treat that as a PA, which is an 85% claim. You've got Incident 2 going on for the other issue, which is 100% claim under the doctor. They come in for the next time. You don't know which thing you're billing under. It gets confusing and disorienting, quite frankly. So that's why we say as much as possible, get rid of Incident 2 flow patients through more quickly, more efficiently, and I can guarantee you that if you see one or two more patients per day, you will make up for the differential of 85% of the 15% differential under incident two. Because realize for an average office visit, that may be $70. We're talking incident two, which is less than 10 bucks of a differential. One or two more patients on the commercial side or Medicare side will make up for that $10 differential on three or four Medicare patients. And again, it alleviates the issue Of fraud and abuse so what we understand is that incident two never applies to anything in the hospital only the office or clinic when a practice gets purchased by a hospital we've got another issue that we'll talk about a little bit later but again incident two never works on the commercial side except for aetna and the fact is If you've got to worry about incident two, you got to make sure that your billing and coding folks are clearly on board so that they understand the billing process as well. It can't just be your understanding. It better be everyone in the practice who understands what this is all about if you intend to use that methodology of billing. Okay? So again, we talked about the pitfalls, new problem, new condition, kicks out of incident two, you've got to decide what you'll do. And the fact is, Your judgment is enough for Medicare. You are autonomous healthcare providers, fully authorized by Medicare Benefit to provide care. There is no need or desire, either from a patient side or from a rule side, for you to have the physician involved in the care of a patient. If there is a need for physician involvement, that's fine. Get that from a clinical point of view, but don't do it from a payment policy point of view. Okay, so bottom line is, you can see anything out there from a Medicare patient perspective point of view, long as you're following the state law, long as it's delegated to you by the collaborating physician. Don't listen to anybody who tells you that the only way to build Medicare is billing under the doctor. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't see a Medicare patient on the first visit or that you can't establish a plan of care because you can. Okay, I wanna shift gears here from Medicare fee-for-service to something called value-based reimbursement. One of the issues that we have going on here is when your practice gets purchased, how many of you have had a practice purchased by a hospital or healthcare system in the last three or four years? Anybody? Not many. So here's the deal, and I'll go quickly through this. When you are a private practice, Medicare treats you a certain way as a site of service. They call you 11 as a site of service. If you are purchased by a hospital or healthcare system or other entity, that site of service tends to change. If you were purchased by a hospital system like Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, you no longer become a private office, you become a hospital outpatient department. Even though your location hasn't changed, your signage hasn't changed, the personnel and the clinical people and the practice haven't changed, nothing is different except that you are now owned by a different corporate entity. When that occurs, you have to change your billing structure to reflect that process. If you ever get purchased by another organization like a hospital, I'm not talking about a larger group practice, but a hospital or healthcare system you don't become a Site of Service 11 anymore. You become a 19 or some other kind of Site of Service, and it means you're, you have to change your billing process. You no longer get to use Incident 2. You've got to use hospital billing department rules, which are, is really a stretch for some people. Commercial payers, here's the deal. They all set their own rules. They're all separate private entities which means there is no one commercial payer policy across the board. All services provided by PAs are covered by insurance throughout the country. That's not the issue. But how they expect you to bill for that service under your name or under the doc's name is what's up for grabs. Now, Medicare's rules and regulations are not being applied to private payers. There may be state law in terms of fraud and abuse. There may be false claims act that apply to commercial payers but on the private commercial side, they almost never have the the plethora of regulatory rules and responsibilities that Medicare has. So it's an easier environment to deal with. However, you're more likely to get rejected from a commercial payer if you don't follow their rules. The terminology may be different. Oftentimes it's semantics. Are you enrolled? Are you credentialed? Are you a covered provider? All that means different things to commercial payers. The bottom line is that you are covered when you provide your services as long as you bill correctly. We are pushing every commercial payer in the country to allow claims to be submitted under the name of the PA. We think that's the only way you're going to get the just rewards you deserve in terms of recognition. On occasion, that means you go from 100% to 85% in terms of reimbursement. We at the Academy think that's enough of a trade-off so that we can recognize what you do that we're willing to make that trade-off. We don't I think that's okay because what you generate is important to the practice. But if it's a question between not seeing you at all in the healthcare system and having a 15% differential, we're willing to accept that trade-off, begrudgingly, without a doubt. We are working with all the major payers personally to make sure they start to change their policy to allow you to do that, to bill under your name and your provider number so that we can track you through the healthcare system. Here's the current policy for most commercial payers. And I will caution you that these are national stated policies. If you have a large group and for which you work, they can have a separate contract with any one of these commercial payers, which means that separate contract can deviate from the national policy, either pro or con. But these are the national policies stated by the major payers, Blue Cross and Blue Shield or Anthem, and Anthem is not one payer, Anthem is a conglomeration of 14 different Blue Cross organizations throughout the country. They want claims submitted under the PA's name. Aetna, as I mentioned before, follows Medicare policy. If you provide the service by yourself, it's an 85% bill. If the doc gets involved in Medicare's incident 2 provision, they allow you to bill the service under the doc at 100%. United Healthcare, they expect claims to be submitted under the PA's name and provider number. Cigna gives you the option either under the DOC or under the PA. Those are national policies. So it's important for us to make sure that you at your practice level don't let somebody say, well, the rule is we bill it under the DOC all the time because that's what payers want. There is no such logic and it shouldn't be accepted. We're happy to talk with anyone at your office in a very kind and collegial way to point out that number one, there are differences here and our only goal in this process is to maximize legitimate reimbursement and to keep you as far away from fraud and abuse as we can possibly do. Okay? It is not wrong, it is not fraud to bill under the name of the doctor, if that's the stated written policy by the payer. Okay? Medicaid, across the board. PAs are covered in all states under Medicaid. 43 states authorize PAs to bill under their own names. Seven states do not. Uh, Delaware and Virginia have said they were going to change their policy in the next few months. We are working on the others as well to have their policies changed. I wanna talk to you about the shift to value-based reimbursement. It is the hottest trend in Washington. Medicare thinks it's the only way they're gonna salvage their program and save enough money to keep it solvent for years to come. Commercial payers feel the same way. And number one, they think that they're spending too much money in the healthcare system to be feasible or sustainable over a period of time. And what the big shift here is to go away from fee-for-service into something called fee-for-value. Medicare and commercial payers think that they've been doing something wrong for the past few decades. They think that they've been incentivizing you as healthcare providers in the wrong way. They pay you for what you do, then they'll pay you the next time for what you do, and they'll pay you a third time for what you do, and their concern is that what you do may not have the right effect on the patient in terms of quality outcomes. So if you had a patient who was not quite progressing the way you thought they should, what's the typical thing that we do for patients? You tell a patient to stay out of the sun, to use sunblock, to use a SPF of 150 if you need to, because their skin is delicate and they're not gonna be able to survive the sun repeatedly. And they continue to go out into the sun. And you keep bringing them back into the office for care, and you keep looking at lesions, and you keep biopsing things because they're just going downhill. What a payer sees is visit after visit after visit that they're paying for. They're seeing no change in the attitude of that patient. And they think that's a waste of their money. What they want to see is an actual change in patient behavior. And they want to begin to incentivize you as healthcare providers to get that done. Now, you say, as healthcare professionals, I've talked to, on blue in the face. I've told my patients what they need to do, how they need to protect themselves, but they're just hard headed, and they're not going to adhere to my advice. And that's legitimate. And then the question is should you be on the hook, financially or otherwise? when you're telling the patient the right things and they simply choose not to believe you or listen to you? The answer probably is no, that's not really your fault. But Medicare and commercial payers say, it doesn't matter, we have to change the entire paradigm. What we want to do is give you funds and resources to be able to affect that patient in a different way, instead of bringing them back 16 times a year for an office visit in which their condition is not improving. And that's kind of the basis of value-based reimbursement. So Medicare is something called the Quality Payment Program. And it's going to be their entree into the marketplace to say, we want you to change how you relate to patients, and we're going to change how we pay you to make that happen. And terms such as MACRA and MIPS and alternative payment models are going to be coming to the forefront. I'm not sure that you have to be so aware of all these issues, but understand that how you deal with patients and how you are recognized in the healthcare system is going to change dramatically in the upcoming two to three years. So what they want to do is shift risk. Instead of them paying out money every time for a visit, they want to say to you, I'll pay out money to you, even more money than I paid before, but only if you achieve a certain outcome that we think improves that patient's condition. And that's going to be the trade-off. The MIPS program is a zero-sum game. So Medicare is going to incentivize some health care providers by giving them bonuses, but for every bonus being paid out there, Medicare is going to take money away from another health care provider who didn't meet the quality guidelines or metrics that they've been putting in place. You're included along with your physician colleagues and advanced practice nurses. You are the test group for the first iteration of the program. Other folks like PT, OT, social workers, speech language, hearing folks are going to come on board later, but you're going to be tested early on in this process. Now, those of you who are in Medicare for the first time this year or newly enrolled in the Medicare program or have a low volume of patients who are Medicare beneficiaries will probably get a pass. But others of you who treat a certain number of Medicare patients, that means more than 200 patients per year, or who have billings of more than $90,000 a year are going to be included in the current program. And the question for me is, where do you stand in this process? How does your practice participate? Are they an alternative payment model? Are they a MIPS-included provider? Are you having any conversation in your practice about these different options? So Medicare has what's called the qppcms.gov website, which, when fully running, is going to be able to allow you to go on this website to check out your status in the Medicare program in terms of the quality payment program. What are they going to tell you? Well, they're going to tell you which way you've chosen as a healthcare provider, or more correctly, which way your practice has chosen to go in terms of the two options of the program. Here's the weird thing about this program in the early years. What you do in 2018 doesn't come back to haunt you or benefit you until 2020. There is a two-year lag time between your performance and whether Medicare gives you extra money or takes money away, which, in my opinion, is really bizarre. I'm a dad of an 18-year-old, and can you imagine me trying to discipline my son by saying, I'm not really happy with what you did, but in two years, you're going to get into the deepest trouble you ever— or, that makes no sense, so why healthcare providers go through the same thing? We are encouraging Medicare to say, within the first three months of the year, a healthcare provider ought to know where they stand in this program. Are they doing it right and meeting your guidelines for quality care, or are they not? Give them a chance to change halfway through the process if they're not doing it right. But at the present time, there's a year and a half to tear lag between what you do and what the results are. So what you do this year is gonna benefit you or take away money from your Medicare payments in 2020. Why is this important why should you care? Number one, it's the dollars. If you are a high-performing healthcare provider, you ultimately might get a 36 to 37% increase in all of your Medicare payments if you meet Medicare's top-line quality provider status. That means every claim you submit to Medicare gets an additional 37% added to it. What's the downside? If you don't meet Medicare's guidelines and are a bad performer, you'll lose 9% on every Medicare payment you make, which means we're talking 40-some percent differential between a high-volume, high-quality provider and a low performer under the Medicare program. Think about going to your next job, and they look at the metrics because the website that tells everybody this is public, and your number is a 27 in terms of Medicare's quality metric, their composite score. And somebody you're competing with for that same job is at a 97, which means they're getting 40-some percent extra on every payment they submit, every claim they submit, and you're losing 9% on every claim you submit. If I'm a hospital administrator, if I'm a practice manager, you know where I'm heading, right? I'm hiring somebody who can bring me an extra 40% income into my practice as opposed to someone who's going to lose me 9% every year. What's the other part of this? It's your reputation. Because Medicare is going to put all of this information on a public-facing website, which means any employer, any patient, any person can go on this website and see exactly what your composite score is going to be on any given year. That matters a lot. And that's Medicare's way of saying, with this kind of pressure, both in terms of reputation and financially, we're going to start to change the behavior of health care providers. Now, there's a lot of risk in this, of course, because sometimes some of you are treating a less adherent patient population. You're treating folks who are more difficult because of social economic issues, because of social determinants of health. You won't get a compliant patient. And Medicare understands this because that non compliant patient has been non compliant for the past five or 10 years. Medicare is trying to build in extra things into the system to pay more for those more difficult patients so that you aren't saddled with paying a price for someone who isn't going to pay attention to your advice, and it's called risk adjustment. So all those things should be taken into consideration if Medicare does it properly, but the bottom line is you're going to need to know this system. Your practice will need to know it. You're going to have to make sure that you do whatever you can in the practice to make sure your numbers are high enough to qualify as a high-performing health care provider. And there are four ways that Medicare is going to look and determine where you fit in this healthcare system. One's going to be in your quality reporting. Medicare has over 200 items that you can use to report quality given your particular specialty or practice setting. You pick the six that are most relevant to you and your patients, and you report on them. Advancing care information takes up 25% of the scoring metric. And that simply means how do you use electronic health records? Another component is going to be improvement activities. What have you done to your practice year over year to make it more accessible to patients? Do you keep your office open an extra three hours on Thursday evening to bring more access to patients? Do you develop a patient portal so that those patients can go into that portal and get their test results back in a day and a half as opposed to waiting for three days for someone in your office to call them back? And finally, it's gonna be cost. Now, this is a bit scary for us, at least it was at first sight, Because the idea was that if you had less cost attributed to your patients, does that mean you're a better performer? That's not what that means. What Medicare is saying is, we don't care how much you spend on your patients in terms of cost, how many referrals you give them, how many pharmaceuticals you prescribe, that's not the issue. The issue is cost compared to outcome. And if you spend a lot of money on your patient and got good quality outcomes, you win in this engagement process. If you don't spend a lot of money on your patients and have bad outcomes, you lose. So it's not about how much you spend, but rather how much you spend versus what the outcome level is of your particular patient. Those are the four issues that are going to be determined by Medicare as to where you rate in this process. I want to spend a couple of minutes on something different called discounted reimbursement, and it's a direct example of how physicians often feel about that issue of incident two versus billing under you as a PA. And there's a lot of talk about what it means to have a 15 percent differential and how do we make that sensible in the healthcare system. Well, here's the deal. You as a PA make less than a doctor. We all agreed on that? Just by a few dollars, I understand, but still, you make a little bit less. Oftentimes, the differential is 50% in specialty care, maybe a little less, 33% in primary care, internal medicine. But the fact is, the cost of employing you is less than a doc. And therefore, I can show you how your margin, your contribution margin, is going to be better than a doc in many cases. So here's the example. We're taking a 99213 E&M service, and we're saying the median salary for a doctor is about $215,000. And if you, if you divide that by 2050 hours per year, it comes out to a cost or an expense of $104 per hour. That's the cost of hiring a doc. If I take a PA salary of somewhere between $95,000 and $96,000 divided by the 20, 000, 2050 hours that you'd work a year, Your net hourly cost is $46. So if I take a service or a visit, and I get paid $100 for that, the doc gets $100. If you get the discounted rate under Medicare, you're getting $85 for that same visit, a 15% reduction. But if I look at the cost versus the reimbursement, the doc cost me $104 for that first visit. The service paid out $100, which means on that first service of the day, the doctor lost $4 meaning that his or her expenses were more than they brought in in terms of revenue. If I look at that same algorithm with a PA involved, even though you only get 85% reimbursement, the fact that your cost for employment, again, just salary, not benefits and all the other issues, your cost is so much less than the doctor at $46, that means that you made a profit of $39 in that first patient of the day, whereas the doc lost $4 and that PA was gonna make that profit every single time a patient is seen. Now, please understand me. I'm not suggesting that you will generate as a PA more than a doctor generates in a given year. That likely won't happen in specialty care, either because of the acuity level of the doctor's patients or the number of procedures that a doc does. In internal medicine family practice, you might outgenerate a doctor or be even with the doc. In specialty care, it's much harder to do. I'm not trying to make the case that you outproduce a doc. What I am trying to say is that even at a 15% differential, you will still be a high profit margin to the practice if you are simply utilized properly. And that's the message I want you to take back. So if somebody's telling you that if I go to Medicare and I allow you to bill under your name and get 85%, I'm going to lose money, not true. It simply isn't true. And when you try to have the doc come in and be involved in Incident 2 claims, Where you adjust your schedule to make that happen under Incident 2, it becomes an inefficient practice model. Patients aren't being seen as quickly or effectively. You're also putting yourself at risk for fraud and abuse. So there are so many reasons and rationales as to why this process of billing under your name makes so much sense financially and from a fraud and abuse avoidance point of view. we got a lot of resources out there. Again, I don't expect you to have complete knowledge of what I've talked about today, but we have a guideline out there. It's called the Essential Guide to PA Reimbursement. It is 360-some-plus pages of everything you'd ever want to know about Medicare reimbursement. Not only does it give you the rule and regulations, but it gives you the citation, the regulation, the statute backing it up. So if there's ever any disagreement, this book is going to clear that up. Again, it's not my opinion, but rather Medicare policy. We have chosen at the Academy not to make a profit on this book because we want vast distribution. It's 25 bucks for members for 360-some pages, updated every year. If you want to make this small investment in your practice and give it to your billing manager or your practice manager to say, here's what I know about PA reimbursement. If you've got any issues, let's talk about them. It's an excellent way to go about that. Or go on the Academy website to print out what we have in there that talks about Incident 2 and all the other kinds of billing mechanisms that I've talked about today. Either one will work simply make it your business at least once a year to have that conversation and trade off of information to assure that you are being proactive in terms of getting the right information at the right time. Okay? So I've been doing this stuff for 26 years at the academy. I'm getting a little tired, but I think I can hang on for another couple of years. I want you to know that I'm fully committed to this. And if any of you are on the other side of the world, that is Washington, D.C., and you got a question about reimbursement, feel free to put feel free to ask me and you'll see me buy my license plate, which is as follows, which simply means that every time I stop for gas, I got to explain what a PA is and go through the whole nine yards and that's okay. Every once in a while, somebody wants to know why PA has to get paid anything. But anyway, the fact is it works pretty well. So contact information, there's my website, uh, email address. We've got four other people who can help you with reimbursement issues and I'm gonna stop there and see if there are any questions about what I've talked about. I guess we have an evaluation coming up first. Is that right? This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.